Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right. The second thing he points out is the effects of climate change on the poor. So the point is simply that while we have the ability to sort of choose whether or not we want to be green-minded or not, or how we want to live, and we're going to be comfortable either way, a whole swath of the global population doesn't. And even our lifestyle and the idea that we need to continue living the way that we live now with excess and decadence is having adverse effects on people other places. This idea is then that if that climate change isn't just about standing in solidarity with the planet, but it's all, or a Christian approach to climate, the climate crisis is not just about standing in solidarity with the planet, but it also is a question of, are we going to stand in solidarity with people around the world who aren't as well off as we are? So um, you can look statistics up, but just the sheer amount of people who already are struggling to have access to clean water or that live without air conditioning and are having trouble now where they are uh, living as it gets hotter and hotter, or who um, rely on subsistence agriculture that is becoming much more tenuous because of climate change. It's a huge swath of the globe that we don't think about because we have all of those things in abundance. We have fresh water. Uh, we have uh, grocery stores. You can go buy whatever you want, whether it's in season or out of season. It doesn't really matter or affect us. We control our climate. It's very easy for us to say, sort of say, oh, this isn't the crisis that we think it is. And even uh, as we see the western half of the United States go through droughts and water shortages, um, some people have breathed a sigh of relief because now it's rained and snowed out there things look like they'll be fine for another 10 years or something. Pope Francis is saying, stop looking at short-term solutions to your problem and think about long-term answers for how do we live together well. We have to ask the question of what what do we need to do or be mindful of uh, so that there would be mutual human flourishing. This next one I thought was interesting, and it's a critique of the technocratic mindset. The way I understand the technocratic mindset is that, actually, I'll use an illustration from C.S. Lewis's, I think it's the abolition of man, where he talks about magic in this way. So Lewis puts magic and uh, the scientific or technocratic mindset on one side, which seems counterintuitive, and then... um, I don't know what the other options are that he gives there off the top of my head, but it's basically be a Christian. Uh, So... The problem with a technocratic mindset is the same problem that you have in magic, and it's basically that we want to use tools to conform reality to our own desires. So even though magic probably didn't have as much of a success rate as uh, modern machines that we have created, the idea is that my desire has to be fulfilled at all costs, and I will make the world around me conform to my desires. The Christian life of faith says, uh, actually, we as human beings are biased or sinful or fallen or whatever word you want to use. 
And reality is ultimately God's reality, and the Christian life, the spiritual life, is about conforming ourselves to the world according to God. This is the Gospel of John, right? There's the world of darkness, and then there's the light of Christ that the darkness can't comprehend. So if we're in the world of darkness, how do we um, get acclimated and assimilated to the light of Christ that shows what's actually true about us, each other, uh, the world that we inhabit, etc.? Well, we think we're the people that need to have a conversion. We need to conform. But on the flip side, this technocratic mindset says, no, I'll stay in the world of darkness and I will make reality conform to that and I will just promulgate the lie. This is a lot of, I think, Paul's, if you want to read Paul's book, this is sort of what's going on there being spoken of. There's a fundamental sort of lie that you can tell yourself that is so powerful. You can actually live that way your whole life. You can make the world conform to this lie. In fact, uh, we do business according to this lie. We erect institutions and corporations according to this lie. Uh, and as I was teaching this class at church, I just called the lie empire, which is uh, I will kill or oppress or enslave or steal from you so that I can survive versus the ethic of Christ, which says uh, Christ has come into the world to give his life for the life of the world. So those seem to be the options. The technocratic mindset is the one that says I will bend reality to my will. It's really the ethic of empire. Hopefully uh, we want to critique that. <laughs> I'm connecting this back to our previous conversation it was really fascinating what you said about rights and how there's this legal tool basically that that can be the technocratic means for accomplishing good desires good things um and there's something there i think worth exploring over time i know i want to um charles taylor pointed me to ivan illich in talking about the good samaritan and that can be the, the the sort of story that illustrates it but basically in the modern world through technocratic thinking we are tempted to turn the move of helping a neighbor in need into like a Kantian ethic sort of thing that I do this because in all times and all places it's good to help someone and so you've, you've left Christian sort of compassion right there. And to, to hold the two side by side and ask, okay, on the one hand, that's, that's true. They're, they're two different things. But on the other hand, to ignore the legal rights of your brothers and sisters in other parts of the world or in your neighborhood is to not be acting uh, consistently with the Christian social ethic. So I don't know. I, I, I really like what you said uh, in pointing out the rights and and, uh, and this brought it back up. So I thought I would say techno te uh, technocracy. I'm not sure what the Pope says about it um, fully. I didn't read that section, I don't think. But um, I'm wondering if you have any response to that. Yeah, that's a, a great insight. And I, I guess I want to clarify, because similar to that discussion on rights, it's not that we're saying technology is inherently bad, or I mean, we're using technology right now to have this conversation, right? It is sort of the Augustinian move to ask yourself about your motivations. So the a tech, 
critiquing a technocratic mindset is critiquing the motivation. Do I want to create tools? Do I want to create technologies to bend reality to my will, to my desires? Or rather, uh, is the technology that we use an expression of the human uh, desire to know, a human genius that can create these things and we can share them and make life better for people? Uh, but it's not so much about conforming reality to our will. So th there is the both and there, and I'm glad you brought up the rights discussion. It's the same thing. You could live in a world, I mean, you could have this whole rights discussion and be the sort of enlightenment way of thinking that you're trying to create a secular age, etc. Uh, but that doesn't mean that rights are necessarily a bad tool. It's just that that in itself is a technocratic way of thinking. We're going to create reality. I think, Paul, actually, you're the one that always says this about, this is what Jesus does, or maybe it's Kierkegaard that talks about how the demonic is unleashed, because now people uh, don't just try to rule the world, but they want to change the world. So Marxism is similar to this. There's aspects of Marx's thought that are great, very helpful, um, ways of critiquing the world as it is, but that urge or that idea that you can go forth and build a world or that Nietzschean impulse to wipe the horizon clean and start over, that is the technocratic impulse that we can conform everything to what we would what we would wish. Do you think that um, part of it too is that the 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 dream that we could somehow solve the problems just with better more effective technology is also a refusal to uh, recognize the ways that we actually need to fundamentally change how we are doing things um i i don't know if anyone's read paul king's north who i find interesting but also terrifying um but uh he talks about his own ecological uh journey away from sort of the mainstream ecological movement because of that sort of basically where they're getting in bed with the corporations and trying to tech their way out of uh, of the climate change issue this is and so it's and uh this is a very good point and i want to i you jogged me to thinking about how pope francis is making some of this point for him a part of the technocratic move is there are groups of people who say the way we solve climate change is by having less children. That has then morphed into people saying, well, maybe about half the population needs to die. <laughs> uh, being a Roman Catholic, the Pope is opposed to both of those ideas. But that is technocracy. That is us trying to conform the world uh, because, in, I mean, you would use literal technologies, but I want to be careful here because I don't want to demonize uh, technology or the things that humans make through ingenuity. Uh, but rather it's, oh, we can get rid of some people. We can come up with a solution that is to get rid of people so we can go on living as consumers like we are and the world will still exist and nobody has to change. Uh, towards the end of Laudato Si, he says, no, uh, you have to change. You have to learn to live with less. We need to make it popular to live that way. But then he also, uh, I'm jumping ahead, but he says, of course, that's not really the answer to the problem, because if all of us lived, we could all start living off the grid. It's not going to really make a difference if the uh, global corporations continue as they are. The idea then is we have to have this conversation at a spiritual level. He encourages us to do that. Take Imagine the world suffering is your own, in other words. And the move there is how do you live as an authentic follower of Christ, having paid attention to these issues? 
So he wants to say for certainly Catholic Christians, but for people of faith, even people who have read Laudato Si and think this is true, you need to have follow through on the conversion that you've had, the insight that you've had, that you've judged to be true, which results in a conversion of life. Be authentic in that sense. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you're probably not going to solve global warming. So that's going to have to happen at the corporate level. So it is, it's both of these things. But yeah, how do you live with yourself is sort of one of the questions that is being asked here. And I think this issue of the technocratic approach is pertinent to that because there is a way of thinking that says, oh, we can figure this out without me ever having to change or experience a conversion about how I live or think. And it doesn't matter that my way of life uh, is an affliction upon other people. Well, you could make the argument that I like what you said about motivation, because if you have a technocratic sort of philosophy or mindset that gives you the the power or whatever, you know, fools you, that you helps you fools yourself to think that you have the power and the means to just muscle it through and sort of you don't need God for that. Well, uh, the book um, used the example of, you know, the, when they were at the, the, the party or picnic and bodies were coming down the stream and they were doing, you know, resuscitation of the bodies. And then one person left the scene and went up to see what was causing all the bodies to enter the stream. Uh, and then Tim Keller said something similar about the, uh, the Good Samaritan. Like, shouldn't, like, after a while, don't you think Jesus, it, it, you know, if the story given to this point or we had, had the same story told that, if there were lots of, you know, robberies and beatings on the road to Jericho at some point, don't you think Jesus would say, it'd be a good idea to have, you know, a little bit more attention given to what's going on this on this road. You know, this is the technocratic means to addressing societal problems. It doesn't necessarily mean it's coming from a technocratic, technocratic mindset. It's using laws. Yeah, I have a question, John, and actually you, something you said, not today, but, you know, this is a, this is one of the things, the, the issue of peace, mm -hmm. you know, why, why are you for nonviolence? Why are you for peace? Well, you could be for that uh, because you imagine that in some way that's the most effective tool to bring about peace, but actually... And, and I think the same thing, in other words, the answer to that is, well, no, we, we're not peaceable because it's a, a tool or an instrument. It's not instrumental. It's not It's not pragmatic. In fact, it may be highly unpragmatic. And I guess that in this conversation, there's the same issue. You know, there there is this, we see the problem, and certainly we don't want to contribute but there is also the sense, yes, but uh, what we do, the, the point is not a, a manipulative or instrumental change, but it is that in creation care, there is a spirituality, there is, you know, making peace with the, with the creation is of the same order as uh, being part of the peaceful kingdom. That's good. Yeah. Another way of putting it is uh, Christianity is not practical in the way the world thinks about what's practical. It can change your life, 
every now and then it really changes the world in a great way. But it's not, we don't become Christians or do this, in other words, to make everything turn out all right, because Christ is bidding us to come pick up a cross instead. It, and in that sense, it is fundamentally, like as you described, peace or anything else, it is it is a solidarity, solidarity movement. Christianity is about abiding in Christ and abiding with each other. It's about building these friendships that have eternal significance. Uh, and as we do that, I think material concerns are addressed. We care about those things. You do what you can, but you don't become a Christian as a tool to, to that end. You had made that statement earlier that in the end, what the corporate world is going to do in the various green movements is going to put the weight of guilt upon, yeah. well, you know, you people need to stop using those plastic forks and as if as individuals, we can change this. And, and obviously, they around, yeah, they turn around and sell you a wooden fork and they keep selling plastic forks. <laughs> yeah. I wonder where the problem is. That's right. So the obvious four is just Laudato Si is a part of the Catholic social teaching. That, of course, means much more to Roman Catholics. Uh, and I think why James Martin brings this up is he's speaking into an American audience. He's like, you have to care about this if you're a Roman Catholic, um, or at least you should. Discussions about ecology can be addressed by the Bible and church tradition. But this is a good point to make. Of course, it's a pretty straightforward one as well. But Christians have something to offer. This was the push uh, by radical orthodoxy a few years ago that, yeah, there's nothing Christianity can't be in conversation with. Um, this is, of course, back to the original idea of what a university was. You're seeking one truth, a unified truth a way of understanding what it means to be human with one another. So, of course, uh, we have tools within the Christian tradition that can have this conversation, and we should be having it. Um, I think that's, you know, part of the danger, too, is always just to imagine that our Christianity is somehow private. Uh, it's this private, sentimental sort of thing that we do on our own. No, it is always a public conversation. Everything is connected, pretty straightforward as well. But maybe not. <laughs> we don't live that way all the time, right? That we actually are interdependent. And I think our very existence should lead us to think this way. But this is the original sin. The original sin is I can have life in myself. Uh, I don't need God. And uh, maybe I don't need you either. Uh, and of course, the idea is no, like you're not saved alone. Uh, you become a human being in community. It demonstrates the church can accept the best science available to it. Uh, I hope we think so, but I know there are still lots of groups and circles, Christian traditions that are leery of scientific knowledge or want to pretend like, uh, you know, somehow scientific knowledge, we don't understand that in the same way that we understand uh, the theological commitments that we have. But in another sense, back to that idea we were talking about a moment ago, if creation is incarnation and Jesus Christ is the truth of all things or in whom all truth coheres, then the way you know any truth is already needs to be in relation to the truth you know in Jesus. That's, again, an Augustinian sort of impulse. The problem isn't that you or this C.S. Lewis has another sermon, The Weight of Glory says this. Uh, still is Augustinian, but the problem isn't that you desire too much. 
uh, it's not that, oh, you're a sexual person, that's the problem, or that you like to eat, that's the problem. It's rather that you don't desire enough. So you don't understand how the only way you're going to be satiated is by resting in God. And so all of these other things need to be related to a life that desires God, or uh, the traditional way of putting that is having a single-minded love of God. That's the goal of the spiritual life. Um critiques those who ignore climate change. So I, I think this, again, James Martin's pointing this out for the benefit of our context. We just live around people who think this is all a hoax still. Uh, how do you have conversations? So part of this class will be pushing towards that. I thought even down here in the Episcopal Church, we've got one of the St. John's Bibles, which is this sort of modern illuminated Bible uh, that's big, like a medieval illuminated manuscript would be and in i believe it is the passage it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse or something in revelation but you can see like oil pumps in the background in this picture and being in texas somebody says why do they always pick on oil <laughs> oh i wonder <laughs> I, I have no idea <laughs> But this idea that we do have conversation, and that's where this is heading. How do you have good conversations? How do you invite other people to have this conversation that we're having? But a part of it is going to be addressing people who are coming from a very different place. Uh, draws on the experiences of people around the world. This is a great strength of being in a Christian tradition that acknowledges that you're in the same Christian tradition as people in other places in the world that have their own sort of autonomy. So it's not just that they exist because you, you did a mission there and your mission is supporting them. But uh, Anglicans are always, you know, this is funny because it shocks us that, oh, most Anglicans are in Africa. And by the way, they don't agree with the Anglicans that are left in Europe and uh, North America. So who do you listen to? Who ought we to be listening to? How do we respect those voices? That sort of thing. It is healthy tension, I should say. And so Pope Francis's papacy has brought that to the forefront. He has, in a lot of ways, emphasized places and areas in the Roman Catholic Church that used to just get ignored, um, essentially in who he's recognizing. But we have to train ourselves to do this as Christians. We so easily trick ourselves into thinking that we're the center of the Christian world and that those people on the fringes are people you have to go do mission work to. But actually, we're already sort of far-flung and have an enculturated version of the gospel, and we need to learn from others as well. Uh, addresses everybody on the planet, so that's sort of an obvious thing, too. This is a very broad teaching. Jonathan, we lost you on a key point, and that was on the issue of technology. And I was thinking of you, you know, that, well, what we want to do with technology is manipulate reality. And I thought, yeah, that's your whole job. That's what, right? I mean, but that's not a bad thing. That's what a, sure. that's, that's what a medical doctor does. Oh, I thought he was talking to me. I was so confused. No, no, no. I, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, my Wi-Fi went out and that was actually, I was, I was really glad Brian brought that up and I missed the whole discussion because that was that was sort of a question on I, I think where where that was going. But, you know, I guess what I do, uh, Jonathan, I'm a anesthesiologist, okay. is the type of physician. I'm. So we've talked about 
you know, what is consciousness? What is even matter? How does all this interact? You know, kind of the mystery. There's a lot of mystery to what I do. Even, you know, the, the science isn't complete. A lot of it is, but not all of it. But um, I, get, I guess in some ways that's part of reality, right? I mean, I'm working within reality, it seems, because it's not well understood. We, we mm-hmm. put it in a different box, but there is a reality to that of, of some kind. I don't know what it is, but yeah. This is good because that helps clarify, I think, the the critique of uh, technocratic mindset is not a critique of technology. And I think we have to be careful with this because there is, um, I mean, there is sort of this impulse that a certain kind of simple life is just all of the sudden better or more holy. And that's not really true. I, I don't think that's what the encyclical saying. In other words, a technocratic mindset is that I want to bend reality to my desires for my good. And implicit in that is maybe at the expense of you. But the way a lot of us use technology is not that way. So we might use technology actually for the common good, or for, as I said, what we're doing right now, uh, for mutual human flourishing which I would take that's what doctors are doing most of the time, uh, though maybe not, you know, insurance companies. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and I think even, the you know, that's interesting the way you brought that up because even the methods, you know, the vast majority of what physicians do, and I hadn't thought about this before this, but so I, I'm trying to think if I'm being too generalized, but you're, you're, you're just providing the conditions for the body to heal itself. I mean, the most complicated surgery, whatever it is, is is really just going to be either removing disease, and then and e- even a heart transplant or something. You know, you're 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 putting something else in there that you didn't make. Now there there are artificial hearts, but they don't work well enough to last, you know, super long or to give the kind of function that that kind of uh, restoration does. But then, you, and and to me, that's using technology to operate within reality in a certain way. And then I think of people like. Elon Musk, who want to upload people's brains on chips and implant them or, you know, make some sort of combined technology, biology that's that's not, you know, necessarily, it doesn't seem like that's going to be part of God intended or what's real or whatever. And I think that's a different mindset, right? Well, it is. Yeah. So this is helpful. And I, I just should point out, like, when we say technology, you realize if you go plant your garden and you use a stick, to poke a hole in the soil, that's technology. So, uh, you know, technology is a very broad word. We immediately, because of the world we live in, I think we think computer chips and electronics. But technology is way beyond that. It includes uh, just about everything we you eat with a fork or you use a, a cup instead of bending over and using your hands to scoop up water. That's technology. There's nothing wrong with technology. The idea, and you were hitting on it there at the end, Jonathan, it's the idea that uh, I'm going to impose my will on reality so I don't have to change and grow. So Christianity is constant. Think about maybe in human relationships. In every friendship, every conversation is a little bit of an experience of dying to yourself and um being found in the other. I actually started to write something about this and it got real convoluted and I deleted it. I don't think it was my blog for Paul. It must have been for some other setting. But I, I had this idea that 
you know, every time I have a thought and, uh, you know, not that we're reducible to our thoughts, but where I am now at this moment, uh, I'm going to share a piece of me as I share uh, information with you or an insight with you, because every insight that we have, every better, we should say the understanding that we have, uh, we have a stake in. In other words, if I try to convince you of something, uh, I think my opinions are right. But you think you're, everybody thinks their opinions are right. Uh, so when I share my opinions with you, I'm not sharing something that I don't already have a stake in. I'm giving a bit of myself to you. And then in conversation, you take that, you do whatever you will with it, and you give it back to me. And so it is this constant trust of the other. I'm going to let a little bit of myself die and be remade in the other. It's this exchange of uh, death and new life. That's how friendship works. That's how marriage works. That's, you know, any good relationship works that way. A technocratic mindset is the one that says, uh, I'm going to close myself off to you or to reality. And I'm going to do that to protect the life that I think I have already within me. I'll, I'll use something that we would never think of as technology. I was My Holy Week reading this year was Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. And um, I don't know if you haven't read it, I probably won't spoil it. It's a hard book to spoil anyway, but I'll give you a, a little bit of tidbit of information. So the main character of sorts is a guy named Thomas Sutton. And he was a poor, you know, white trash sort of mountain man in Virginia, a uh, piece of Virginia that later becomes West Virginia, as gets brought up in the story. His father takes them out of the mountains and they go down to the tide waters and he sees wealth like he's never seen before in these plantations. This would be like 18, 20 or 30 something. He is sent on an errand to one of these large houses and he goes to the front door and the black slave that is there standing guard of the door is dressed in livery says oh no you can't come into the front door go around to the back and that's the first thing he takes as an insult and when he goes around to the back he has something to drop off uh the gentleman at the back door says, oh just lay it there don't come any closer and so as a child thomas decides he it's never going to have that happen to him again. And you see the redemptive edge may, there's not a redemptive edge in the story, but if there was one, it was that maybe for a split second, he considered that he would be the sort of person that wouldn't send that kid away. But that's not what happens. So he goes to get rich. He goes down to Haiti. He ends up married to a planter's daughter. But after they're married and after they have a kid, he finds out that his wife is part black and he leaves her because of this. Now, he doesn't leave her in squalor or poverty. He gives up all of his share that was already deeded to him. The, this woman and the son never sees them again, moves to Mississippi, uh, starts a new plantation with some slaves he stole from Haiti, uh, goes on, gets married again, has two more kids. Well, 20 years down the road, that first son befriends his son, his, his second son, at university. They don't know their brothers. And his daughter from his second marriage falls in love with his first son, and the first son's in love with the daughter. And that puts the 
the middle son, the fully white son, in a bind. What is he going to do? This is his best friend. He doesn't know anything about this other guy's heritage. He just knows that he's his brother at this point. They fight the Civil War together, and the whole time is this turmoil. What is Henry, which is so I give you their names, it'll make more sense. Charles is the oldest son who is part black, but you can't tell. Henry is the son that Sutpen has in Mississippi, and Judith is his daughter. Judith and Charles are in love. Henry knows that it's his brother now. They fight the Civil War knowing that they're just hoping one of them will die. By the end of the war, Henry wraps his mind around incest. He's okay with it. He's going to let his older half-brother marry his sister until he finds out that his older half-brother is black. Doesn't have uh, just enough black blood in him to count that he's not a person anymore, and he shoots to prevent the wedding. So the, te the technocracy here actually is the class system in the South. It's not a piece of technology, but it's a, a technology of sorts that's been foisted on the world that will allow you to make sense of incest, but not uh, a black person marrying your sister. Hmm. In other words, it's some tool that we have created that we foist upon reality to make reality bend to our desires. And it's a sort of rigid way of thinking. So it's, I will protect myself and what I, however I have formed a way of securing my life in the world at all costs. In the climate change conversation, it's uh, in no way am I going to quit being a consumer. In no way could we ever mess with capitalism. In no way could we ever, uh, you know, try to put some restrictions on these transnational corporations. But instead, let's just invent some way that we Western rich people can keep on ignoring the climate crisis. So that's the issue at stake here. And uh, the way Pope Francis talks about it, as I said earlier, is really about people who are who are saying birth control is the answer or who are saying, uh, which as an Anglican, I don't think birth control is a terrible thing, but it's not the answer to climate change or um, letting half the population die is not the answer to the climate crisis, which are both technocratic answers to the problem because they're those, those are those answers that say, I don't have to change. I don't have to pay attention to the world around me and um, maybe go through a spiritual conversion that says, I'm going to do all I can to love my neighbor. Instead, I can secure my life in the world uh, and I can come up with new technologies to keep you people at a distance. This is actually, this is good because this brought up where I wanted to go with this. Is at the end of that talk by James Martin, uh, go ahead. Does, you want to say something, Brian? Just to go back. Um what is technology? It came to me when we were talking about that, that both of them are technology, both the spear and the plowshare. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you so, go. So the technocratic mindset would be the spear. Yes. But a good, enough, you know, a redemptive use and, and option for technology and the peace, the peaceable approach. Um, is analogous to that the plowshare and i just i couldn't get that off my mind and loving this discussion but yeah i guess my hand was raised but it was subconscious well i'm glad i'm glad it was there but that's a great image i was thinking you know i just had my gallbladder out jonathan i'm certainly glad there was an anesthesiologist there and they didn't just give me you know a piece of leather to bite down on <laughs> so, and i don't think i'm just being selfish in that <laughs> so in any case, James Martin points towards the need for conversion. 
And so there's this great quote uh, from a theologian that I love uh, that Alan and David have now read, Bernard Lonergan. And the way it goes is something like this. I hope I don't mess it up. Be attentive, be responsible, be loving, and if necessary, change. So what we're doing in this class is the first bit of any conversion is be attentive. This is that this discussion is about pay attention to things you hadn't thought about before. Uh, but paying attention is just paying attention to stuff. It doesn't mean that you have interpreted that stuff yet. That's something you have to do. Uh, and that's that move from being into, oh, it's be attentive, be intelligent. Uh, be intelligent means after you've paid attention, ask some questions that you're willing to get answers to. And when you get answers to those questions, be responsible means that whenever you have an insight and you've judged it to be true or false, you better follow through with the way that you live. Otherwise, you're going to be a divided sort of person who knows one thing uh, but does the other. That's be responsible, be loving. Put yourself at the service of your neighbor. That's more of really the Christian conversion, or you say the religious conversion. And then ultimately, change if necessary. So uh, it seems like change is more necessary than not because that's the sort of creatures we are. We're creatures who are susceptible to change and thus we need to grow into the image and likeness of God. But this is the idea that's already in the encyclical. I know James Martin knows who Lonergan is. So conversion packs a little bit of this punch when he uses the word. But it is this idea of understanding the world in such a way that you're willing to be changed and transformed, but not by the world that's founded on the lies. Uh, as Paul would remind us, but rather the world as it coheres in Christ. And that's the goal of this class as we go forward. So we'll just continue to sort of have that conversation with a bunch of different topics uh, that we're going to be attentive to until by the end, I think we'll actually have gotten something. Next week, as we wrap this up, I'll just say next week, what I would like you to do, if possible, is to watch the Martin Scorsese version of Silence and then read that article by Matthew Potts. If you've seen the movie and can remember it well enough, or if you've read the book, uh, it is a, it's, I've got it right here. It's a, quite a good book to read. Um, it's a page turner, in other words. Then you may just be able to read the Matthew Potts article and know what he's talking about enough that you don't need to go back and do that. But uh, it'll be a fun refresher otherwise. And I think most of our discussion will focus on that. And a part of what we're doing is... Even in Laudato C, as we've paid attention to this, and as I've asked you that question about your social location that we'll talk about more next time, I hope we're beginning to see that as we tell this story, we may be already pretty complicit in the forces of empire. Uh, we may be complicit in uh, the spear rather than the plowshare. And so we have to work through that a little bit. And so we're going to be attentive to that. Next week's definitely going to bring that up. And then we're going to already start asking those questions, hoping for the answers that will lead to conversion change, uh, to living authentically as followers of the one who died for the world, life of the world. Now, in that article, there's a movie that I have not been able to find. There was a Japanese New Wave version of the film of the book done in film in like 1971, and it's quite different as you might, as Paul would expect anyway, um, being that it's making a, point, a very Japanese point about everything. Matthew Potts will explain all that to you in the article well enough, even if you haven't seen it. I think he's assuming most people haven't watched that, 
But and if you want to get totally confused, I've written several blogs on silence. If you go to the just type in Shusako Endo or type in silence, uh, which may or may not pertain, I'm not quite sure where John. I, I think the more familiarity it's I'm using it one because there was a movie so I'm doing this for church and I wanted not them I didn't want them just to have to read every single week in preparation um one because the story has always captivated me uh but also because that article by Matthew Potts is really good because it asks to, what, the question that he's asking and that you can focus on is the issue that comes up in silence is one that we'll have to work through with the rest of this class or anytime you say, well, we're going to do theology and the social sciences. Well, what about Christianity in that conversation is important? Uh, how is the Christian identity what is what we're starting with? And how are we not foregoing that and just doing whatever seems to be working now? And so in the question in Matthew Potts's article or the question in silence is how vacuous is the Christian identity? In silence, the question that arises is do the Jesuits follow Christ by apostatizing? So is Christian identity so vacuous that as long as you are doing it for the purpose of serving others, that you can even apostatize to follow Christ? I think that's actually the words of one. Even Christ himself would have apostatized. Uh, and so that's the question we're going to be wrestling with. But he brings the flip side of this, and this is Paul's interested in this, I know, from past conversations, is, you know, Japan's own history is not that it actually resisted uh, Western culture, which is what the whole point was, but it takes up into itself Western missionary culture, manufactures that as state Shinto, and then goes off and tries to colonize Southeast Asia. Uh, well, not just Southeast Asia, because Korea and China and Northern China as well. So they end up becoming the white Asians, uh, the colonizers, the empire. Of course, the story in silence is the whole reason you're pushing back on Christianity is because they don't want to be colonized by the Portuguese. And they think that's and that is what usually happens, right? The missionaries go in and then the armies follow. So it's a very provocative story in between the novel, the questions the novel's asking that are in the movie, and then uh, the history. We're mostly going to focus on the novel, not the history, uh, to talk about that question. But if you want to get into it, and since we have Paul and he'll be, he's a great help on the subject, you know, uh, take the discussion wherever we want to take it, in other words. Hey, Paul, you know, I wrote you about a year ago and said, we ought to watch the movie Silence or talk about the movie Silence. You said, I've written on that and, and I read some of it, I think. But I wanted to tell you what motivated that. I think it was around the time you were talking about Bonhoeffer's idea and the question of a um, um, religionless Christianity. Oh, and so I oh sort God, of... To those arguments, too, that we had. Yeah, it led me back <laughs> to, to Silence. Yeah, I was probably listening to y'all to talk about it. <laughs> Okay, yeah, yeah. Where are you, Jim? I did a week of uh, uh, disaster reconstruction uh, in Kentucky. They got hit by some tornadoes. Oh, okay. So I've spent a week doing some hammering some nails, and they're having a meeting here, so I'm going to mute myself. So while we're talking about doing good stuff, you're actually you're out doing it. Doing it. 
<laughs> That's the background noise. Okay, glad you showed up. All right. Well, I enjoyed this very much. Thank you all for coming, and I look forward to the next seven weeks. Thank y'all. Okay. Thanks Thank everyone. you, John. Now you know why I asked John to teach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can talk endlessly. Uh, you know, Callisto's Ware told a joke uh, about this, about himself. He, I heard him tell it. He was already a very old man at the time. And he was giving a lecture and he said, you know, I, I sit around in the halls of Oxford and sometimes the lectures just go on and on and on. And I'm trying to take a nap. And I think to myself, who is that old man that just keeps droning on and on and on? And then he says, oh, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> no droning. I thought it was all I thought it was all excellent. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Good to see everybody. Good night. Good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.